Angela will lead us in this prayer, and let's join together for the words in bold. To the mothers in our midst, we celebrate. To those who gave birth this year to their first child, we share your joy and excitement. To those who are in the trenches with little ones every day, we see you. To those who lived through driving tests, medical tests, and the overall testing of motherhood, we appreciate you. To those who have lost a child, and this day is incredibly difficult, we mourn with you. To those who experienced loss through miscarriage, failed adoptions, or running away, we grieve with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility, fraught with pokes, prods, tears, and disappointment, we walk with you. To those who are stepmothers, foster mothers, and godmothers, to those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate with you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children, we sit with you. To those who have lost their mothers, we grieve with you. To those sons and daughters, who grew up asking for more love, but didn't get what they needed, we love you. To those without children who long to be mothers, we mourn that life has not turned out the way you long for it to be. To those who placed children up for adoption, we commend you for your selflessness, and remember how you hold that child in your heart. And to those who are pregnant with new life, both expected and surprising, we anticipate with you. Mothering is not for the faint of heart, and we have real warriors in our midst. We love you, we honor you, and we are better because of you. God, thank you for teaching us through the mothers in our midst. Please bless, guide, and strengthen them through Christ. Amen. Let's sing this chorus again as a reminder that God loves us like a good mother loves her child. You say, I am loved. You say that I am strong. Sing these words together. You say I am loved when I can feel a thing. You say I am strong when I think I am weak. You say I am held when I am falling short. And when I don't belong, you say I. You say, you say I'm 
you can believe that this morning, that you are loved, that you are held, that you are cherished. God, help us to know that we are loved. Help us to share that love with others. It's through Christ that we pray. Together we say, Amen. You can have a seat. So since Easter, we as a church have been looking at a letter in the New Testament called Colossians. This is a letter written to a small house church in a city in an out-of-the-way part of the empire, a city that had known some economic prosperity in its past but was living through a period of some economic decline. This is a church that, uh, though they, they are there and they've heard this good word that has called them to be a church, they also are being tempted by some, some false messages that seem to be coming their way, some liars, some bad teachers. And while we may not be able to nail down every detail of what these false teachers were saying, it seems clear that they were saying something like, you got to jump through some hoops to get to God because God doesn't want anything to do with this flesh and blood material reality. And to rebut that, to defeat that lie, the writer of Colossians has been telling the church, don't you understand that in Christ, not only is God like tolerating the flesh and blood reality that we live in, God has chosen to live God's life in flesh and blood. The fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form in Christ, and somehow we've been brought to fullness. Now that can feel a little bit abstract, like what does it mean to be brought to fullness? But then the letter turns towards some more practical ways of working this out, and we looked at those last week. That, like we can put to death the things that cause us to war against one another, which makes sense if it's in bodies that God is living God's life. Well, it might be the body, the, the person that you are warring against through whom God is living God's life. And so we would want to live at peace with one another so that we can live in the fullness of God's life in flesh and blood bodies. And then we got to wrap ourselves up and clothe ourselves in compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness, forgiveness, patience. These ought to be the ways that we live our lives in the world today. So, so far we've gotten this big, beautiful, expansive theology about God living God's life through flesh and blood. And we've gotten uh, the beginnings of a picture of how our day-to-day life could live in harmony with that big picture. And then the text takes another turn further in the instructions that it gives. And today I want to look at that text with you uh, because it's a challenging text. So we're moving further in chapter 3. And let me just share with you the passage that I'm talking about. We read, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. 
Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Is anybody a little bit uncomfortable? <laughs> Maybe not with all of it, but with part of it even? Yeah? Some, some are uncomfortable with wives, submit to your husbands. Some are uncomfortable with slaves, obey your masters. This is a complicated text, and we want to work it out together a little bit today. Now, uh, in the last week, I've had the, the privilege of talking with a friend in our community who from time to time over the past several years has been an important conversation partner for me. Somebody, uh, like we, we bounce ideas off of each other. We wrestle with some of this stuff. And she and I were talking about this text this week, wrestling with its challenges and trying to figure out what it might mean for us today. And while we were talking, it just struck me, we should probably just bring that conversation into the stage and, and have her be a part of this. So uh, that's what we're going to do today. It's sort of a conversational interpretation of this text. And uh, to have that conversation... Uh, we're going to bring up, uh, she is chair of English and a professor of English at Holy Cross College. Uh, she's also uh, a theologian and a scholar in that, in that right. Uh, she and her husband, Andrew, along with their kids, Abby and Danny, have been beloved members of this community for a little bit now. Uh, please welcome Dr. Jessica Hughes to the stage. Yeah. Welcome, Jessica. Hello. And uh, thank you again for giving us your time. You've given uh, the time that you and I spent talking about this text and the, and the work mm -hmm. that you did on it. And then you gave us Thursday night, and now you've given us all of Sunday morning. And you are a professor at the end of a semester. Yes. And you have other work to do. Just a little. I, I made the mistake of assigning like about 750 pages of work to my students at the end of term. It was a bad idea. So now yeah. you've assigned yourself grading 750 pages mm -hmm. of work? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Not smart. Yeah, but you're here, and we're really <laughs> grateful. Uh, Jessica, we have a complicated text here in Colossians. Yeah, um, it's, it's one of these texts that sometimes it's called a text of terror hmm. because of the way it's been used against people. Mm. Um, and I think maybe because of the way it strikes terror in preachers as well as they have to <laughs> preach it. Yeah. Um, it. It's not fun for anyone, I don't think. Yeah, yep. I, one of the ways that this text is, is hard for me is just the way it sits next to other parts of Colossians. So there's even like on a, just a textual level. And let me show you one example of what I mean by that. So we just looked last week at Colossians 3, verse 11, where we read this. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian or Scythian or slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. In other words, here what I read is like, you know those categories, those roles that divide us? Uh, social, ethnic, tribal, religious, uh, socioeconomic, like, you know those roles that divide us? Not here in the church, right? We don't live by those roles. So there, there's no slave or free in the church. And then six verses later, seven verses later, slaves obey your masters. So that's like a textual difficulty here. Yeah, I mean, it seems like we've just blown up all those categories and then just instantly reimposed them. Yeah, so. yeah but you've yeah. observed not just that little kerfuffle between verse 11 <laughs> and verse 18 and following, but some other ways that the, 
the, the, the text itself seems like there's um, some tension between verses 18 and following and the letter before that, right? Yeah, so I mean, if you're reading leading up to verse 18, you've got these big, beautiful, sort of visionary sentences, right? Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful, and let the message of Christ dwell in you, you, and this, and, uh, and you, like, you don't even know where to stop, right? Because yeah. the, the language is just building on itself, and in fact, in the Greek, it's like one big, long sentence, and, and all these ands, 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 ands. <gasps> Wives, submit to your husbands. Children obey your parents, slaves obey your masters. It's, I mean, yeah. it's almost like bullet points, right? And there's just this sort of feeling of like, whoa, what, ha- what happened there? I mean, yeah. as a teacher, when I see that, right, my instant thought is somebody's copied and pasted. Yeah, right? <laughs> and you're not joking, right? You can tell when you're yeah, reading absolutely. a student's paper that you sense there's one kind of language, and then when the tone shifts too much, you're like, Something, something's not right here, right? Right, absolutely. And I mean, there's a couple reasons why students do this in their own mm-hmm. writing, right? Mm-hmm. Usually it's because they don't understand something well enough to explain it in their own words. Mm-hmm. And so it's just easier to take what somebody else has said and dump it in. Mm-hmm. Or it's because something that they're dealing with isn't working out in their own head quite right, and they just mm-hmm. don't know how to how to get their head around it, and so they, they end up you know, using somebody else's language or they end up just explaining things kind of as simply as they can because it, it's not working out yet. Yeah, so there's a couple problems in the text. Like one would be that it seems to maybe contradict the thing that we read earlier in the text, and the other is this really massive shift in tone and language <laughs> that it just doesn't almost sound right to the ear, like something's going on here, right? Yeah. But then, but then we have problems um, not just in the text but the way that this text relates to the world, right? So we have um, slaves obey your masters, and you know, thank God we live in a time where the vast majority of us have sort of arrived at the consensus that slavery is not just a problem, but it, that it's morally reprehensible, mm-hmm. even though it's still a reality in the year 2019, even in the, in the U.S., but there seems to be this consensus that it's bad, so th- there's that problem with the text that tells slaves to play along with that. Yeah, yeah. well, because it feels like somehow maybe is that category do- divinely ordained or something? Yeah. Like, why, how can that category even exist yeah, in this like, text? Yeah, I think for God to be who we want God to be, we don't want a text that affirms slavery. Right. We want a text that throws it off, right? right. And then we have uh, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. And it's important to, like, name, we have that text, and we live in a world um, where the lived reality of far too many women is um, that their relationship with men becomes abusive. Uh, it, it's actually dangerous for them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so when, when you start learning the stats on things like domestic violence and sexual assault, it's, it's quite shocking, right? Uh, every nine seconds, a woman will be um, beaten or assaulted by her intimate partner. Mm-hmm. Every nine seconds in America. Between uh, 25 and 35% of women will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime, and half of those will know the perpetrator. Domestic violence, visits to the ER, um, are like, it's, it's a bigger cause for visits to the ER than car accidents, rapes, and household accidents combined. And among women of childbearing age, domestic violence is a bigger cause of death than cancer. And that's not just like something that happens out there to other people. This is the lived experience of girls who I teach. This is the lived experience of girls that I've mentored in churches. And this is the lived, was my lived experience for a time in college. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this isn't just, um, like, you, like you've observed, it's not just like communities that don't identify as Christian or whatever. In fact, the statistics get more specific about the way this arises or shows up in um, households that might identify with their, with their faith. Yeah. So some of the most recent research on domestic violence suggests that 
um, nominal evangelical men are the demographic most likely to be perpetrators of domestic violence. Mm. Nominal, evangelical, nominal evangelical men are more likely to beat their wives than non-religious men, than men of other religious traditions, and then highly um, mm -hmm. religious evangelical yeah, What's meant by nominal, by the nominal, way? Nominal, um, they measure that as, a, as church attendance approximately once a month, people who are kind of on the, the edges of congregation but would self-identify yeah. as evangelical yeah. but not deeply invested in the communities. Yeah, and what's crazy too, uh, I've been thinking is, you know, you hear the statistics um, and, and it's, if you haven't experienced that, it can be kind of shocking if you're naive to it, but, but then you don't have to actually look that far because we actually live in an era, even in the year 2019, where um, typically men, right, who occupy positions of power within the church, preachers, pastors, book writers, platform people who have a lot of influence, e even in the era we're living in right now, we're seeing uh, men write books and preach sermons and tell women mm -hmm. that if your husband's physically abusing you, you need to stay in that situation, that that's what God wants from you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you follow church news, there have been um, a number of high-profile news stories in the past 12 months of... Um, major leaders of denominations being forced to step down because of preaching such things. Mm -hmm. um, I, have, I have worked in churches and sat in sermons where I've heard exactly that preached within the past 15 years. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so we have a lot of problems here, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. we, we wanted to grapple with this text with everything on the table, right? We didn't want to ignore these uh, really difficult issues here, but rather to, to bring them together and then wrestle with mm -hmm. what we should do with a, yeah. with a book like this. So uh, you and I have been working on this text. You've done some studying. And you sort of surveyed, so, so what do scholars, commentators, what do they do with this complicated text? And you've observed there's a couple of major approaches that are common, right? Yeah, so the first one is what we would call a complementarian approach, which is basically that the, the text pretty much means what it says. This is presenting a vision for God's hierarchical, um, well-ordered universe. Mm -hmm. And that if everyone would just kind of adhere to these, and wives would submit to their husbands, and husbands would love their wives, then we would have this, this sort of beautiful, ordered society in which everyone flourished. So in that reading, the text means what it says, says what it means, and it continues to mean that today. Right. And this is basically the way God wants things. Men are on the yeah. top of the org chart. That's right. Yeah. What do they do with slaves? Um, it's interesting that there's some you know, kind of nervousness around that category, I think, for them. Um, sometimes they will talk about, well, our economic structures are different, but, but it's basically the same thing as like employers and employees, or you know, okay. try, try to reduce it to an economic reading. Yeah. Okay. Um, but there's the sense that male headship is a beautiful and good thing in this, yeah. in this sort of reading. And there's kind of and a big word for that school of thought, which is complementarianism. Complementarianism, right? yeah. Yeah, that the roles complement each other, but that they're sort of, they're not really interchangeable. Men have the top of the org chart. Women sort of fall underneath that in some way in terms of their, their role in the home. And then that also often translates into the role in the church, right? So most right. people that hold that view for the home would also say that in a church setting, men should be at mm -hmm. the top of the org chart, men should do the preaching. That's right. For the record, that's not Southland City Church's <laughs> position, just to clarify. But, but that's, yeah. that's a fairly common view that yeah. a lot of churches and, and Christians take from this text. It is a, it is a fairly common view, and it does... Um, I mean, I think it works for some people. Yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I, have, I have a really mixed sort of relationship with this particular view because some of the people who have been the biggest encouragers and supporters of mine as an academic have been people who read the text this way. Mm. And so it's very hard for me to think like, you know, they're bad, evil people who are trying to enforce some sort of oppressive patriarchy because they're the exact same men who have come alongside me and encouraged me and supported me and told me you should definitely mm -hmm. be doing a PhD and, you know, you, you can do this, right? So... Mm -hmm. I think it's important we don't kind of create boogeymen out of people who, who right. hold this reading. Even though I do disagree with that reading, you know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of, like, good and well-meaning people who would uphold that view. And I, I think of uh, women I know in my life who um, 
who have told me that the way that their marriage works, what they, what they love about their marriage is they do kind of work it out that way. The, the husband kind of leads, yeah. and then the wife sort of sees herself in a support role. And again, we're not talking prescriptive here, like everybody mm-hmm. needs to do that, but I've, I've heard from a number of women who I, I think find great joy and meaning in that, and yeah. that works for them. And there's probably really an important difference, though, between a couple discerning that sort of way of their marriage working versus that being sort of imposed as this is what God wants, has always wanted, and will always want right. for the relationship between the sexes or, for that matter, between slaves and masters. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so that's, that's kind of the first big approach is mm-hmm. the text means what it says. It says what it means. And God has designed a world where men are supposed to be on top of the org chart. Yeah. It's kind of the first uh, big category. What's another way that people are dealing with the text? So this, the second big approach is sort of an amelioration approach, which is saying, you know, these categories were pre-existing in um, the Greco-Roman world. Mm-hmm. And so the writer is speaking into these categories and trying to make them not quite so bad as they would be otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, yeah, it kind of sucks, but look at, we can, we can make it a little bit less, less painful for you. Um, when it says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, that's clearly putting limits on it, that you, know, you mm-hmm. shouldn't submit to abuse. Um, when it says, slaves, obey your earthly masters and everything, well, it just doesn't mean that. It means only up to a point. <laughs> right, um, right. And, and that works to some extent, and especially when you know some of the other ancient sources. I mean, Aristotle was, was much worse than this. Yeah. And, so, and literally, Aristotle writing uh, before this text right, has, has a household code, household code in his writing. Right. And so there's examples that we can compare this to, and, and they would yeah. point to what kind of differences. So, yeah, so this, this was a common genre in wisdom literature, right? If you're going to write about kind of what life is about, you stick in some instructions for how households should function. Um, and in, in other household codes, you would see the directions would only be given to what's called the pater familias. He's like the guy at the top who is the, typically the husband, father, and master. Hmm. Um, so the instructions would be given to him as to how he should rule his household. Um, and there were usually no restrictions placed upon him. Mm. Um, there are a few sources where you find some restrictions, but for the most part, the idea was for him to rule, and this is how you rule. So Aristotle would have kind of sort of, he, he would have written the code to the man and would have said mm-hmm. to the man, your wife should submit to you, yeah. which seems a little different than saying, hey, wife speaking directly to yeah. the wife, and there wouldn't be, as is fitting in the Lord, it would just be, you're the boss. That's right. So these, these scholars in this kind of second category would say, see, there's a, there's a little shift here. This it's is better. It's a little better. It's a yeah. little better. I, honestly, I still find that reading kind of problematic, though, mm-hmm. because here's the thing. If you're, only suppo- if you're supposed to submit to your husband, but only to a point, well, that, and that point ends where, like, abuse begins, mm-hmm. well, then you kind of end up in this really difficult double bind, right? Well, I'm supposed to submit, but if I submit too far, then I'm in trouble for submitting too far, and you end up becoming kind of blaming the victim for not resisting enough. Mm-hmm. And so you end up with this sort of situation where, where women and slaves can be kind of in a no-win situation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I think that, that reading has its own sort of internal problems. Yeah. So that has led you to, to wrestle with this text and to develop uh, another possibility, another, another way of thinking about what might be going on here. Yeah. So bef- before I to speak about that, I think it's important to understand like the real lived experience of slave women, to understand mm-hmm. where my reading's coming from. So especially for slave women in the ancient world, but also for wives and children, um, you had literally no social recourse if you were in a bad situation, right? So a lot of commentators, too, they assume that these are being written to Christian households, like to exclusively Christian households. The problem is that doesn't match up with the reality of the early church, right? Mm -hmm. There was no guarantee that the slaves and women and children sitting in the audience had a wonderful, loving, benevolent paterfamilias who was following Jesus at the head. Mm. And so, so this is the problem. If you were a slave in the ancient world, you had no right to your own body. 
you would serve your master at table, and mm. across the literature, you would also be serving him in bed, mm. and probably his friends too, because whoever your master gave rights to you, you also, they also had rights to your body. And this creates a really interesting textual problem for you know, slaves and wives in the first century, um, especially though for slave women in the first century, because just a few sentences earlier uh, in verse five, put to death, death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. How do you do that if you're a slave woman? When, when your body's being used for those things, how do you... How yeah. do you put it to death? How do you put it to death? Like, yeah. So either you, you don't get to participate in the Christian community, you, you don't get to be part of this mm. new life, or you defy your master and risk m probable death. Yeah. That, that's a very hard situation. So, so before we draw out mm -hmm. what that might mean for yeah. a reading, I just want to call a time out and observe that it's really important to recognize everything we're talking about is us trying to understand a context that's very different from our own, right? And so as we talk yeah. about what this might mean for its original audience, we want to observe that we live in a world today where whilst trafficking and slavery and abuse are, are certainly realities, we do live in a world today where most of us have more access to help and where uh, if you're a person who's in danger in any way and if you're in a marriage um, that's abusing you or in some other way, if you're under threat, we just want to say really clearly, we don't think you should be sticking around for that. We think you should ask for help and that might mean talking to somebody that you trust it might mean talking to somebody in this community. And if neither of those feels like a good option, we also have some resources. We'll put them on the screen and then we'll post them online later this week. But there's the National Domestic Violence Hotline with the phone number. Again, we'll, we'll post these later so you can grab them. Uh, there's the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network uh, with an online chat and a phone number. Uh, locally, we have the SOS Family Justice Center here in St. Joe County. And we have a local YMCA women's shelter. And um, if, if talking to someone close to you doesn't feel safe, and if talking to one of us doesn't feel safe, we hope that maybe one of these options would feel safe to you. And again, we're, we're living in a very different time, and we wouldn't read this text to say that I guess you're just stuck there because we don't want you to be. Yeah. That being said, let's go back to the context here. <laughs> that being said, in the second century, there wasn't this slide. Yeah. Right? In the second century, there were no social, legal, political options for women and slaves. Mm -hmm. So if your husband was beating you, you, you can't just like leave and go get a job and get an apartment. Like that's just not the way the world worked, right? Yeah. If you slave, you run away, you're supposed to be killed. Yeah. Um, and so it occurred to me that maybe this passage, in light of what goes on earlier in the letter, and in light of this lived reality, m maybe the letter means exactly what it says. Hmm. Maybe it means, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Maybe that's why the rhetoric falls apart here. Maybe this is why it becomes so flat and short is because the writer realizes the lived reality of the people he's writing to and this big vision of new life in Christ, they don't seem to work together. And he knows that the, his audience, which, I mean, Christianity was largely a religion of women and slaves. He knows that a lot of the people listening in this historical moment of the, of the first and second century have no other option. Mm. So it's okay. It's not on you. Obey your masters and everything. It's not your fault. And I think it's really interesting that the, the instructions to slaves ends with this grammatically funky and difficult to pin down um, sentence, those who do wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favoritism. Mm. God sees. It'll be repaid. 
it's not your fault. Yeah. I think that might be what this passage is trying to communicate to slaves. All that stuff I just said about putting away sexual immorality, I know you can't. Mm -hmm. And it's not your fault. Yeah. Especially powerful when we know that, um, like you said before, that for victims of abuse, assigning blame to themselves is one of the really dark sort of things that often happens in that yeah, experience. Yeah. I, right? I, mean, I think one of the hardest things is believing that things aren't my fault, yeah. right? I mean, I can go down a rabbit hole yeah. pretty easily and pretty quickly. So it's almost what you're proposing or, or exploring the possibility of is, is maybe this writer recognizes the women will be submitted to their husbands whether they want to or not yeah. in this reality, in the setting. The slaves will submit to, be submitted to their masters yeah. whether they want to or not. And so the writer, after this beautiful theological vision of what God has done in Christ and, a, and then a picture of a life that is in harmony with that work, then recognizing that many of the people he's writing to don't have access to that life right now. Yeah. They, they just literally don't have the power to liberate themselves or to walk away from some of the things that are happening to them. So maybe it's an act of profound grace yeah. for the writer to then turn and make room for where they are right now. Yeah, the, the, the idea that even in this, this really dark moment, in this dark place, that their lives can still be the venue for, mm -hmm. for God and, and grace and maybe new life even somehow, mm -hmm. that, there's, that the divine life might have something to do with even those darkest moments. As you were sharing this idea with me the other day, um, an image came to mind for me. Uh, there's, a, there's, there's a work of art um, that has been really meaningful to me for a few years now that um, I, it expresses something that I feel in this conversation mm -hmm. we're having and also in other moments when I've um, been living my life or reading the scriptures. Uh, I first saw this image on my friend's arm because he got a tattoo of it. Uh, but at some point it got awkward to just like meditate on his bicep and I really wanted to keep, <laughs> to keep like focusing on this image because I found it really helpful in my prayers and in my reflection. So I, I tracked it down. It's actually created by a couple of artists, Shana and Robert Park Harrison. I wanna, I wanna put this in front of you because it came to mind for me as we were talking. So it's a little faded and hard to see, but you have earth on the bottom there and the earth is literally sort of being yanked up by this big hook from the sky, right? And there's this tether that is sort of pulling the sort of earthy reality up toward the heavens. And that same tether stretches all the way up to the clouds, and it gathers together the clouds in a sort of a bundle there, right? And it's sort of pulling these two things together, like heaven and earth. And then there's this guy who's like stuck in the middle of the rope, almost in the tug of war between heaven and earth. And I, I think I first latched onto that image because most days... That to me feels like what it is to be human, what yeah. it is to be Christian, that um, yeah. we believe in the kingdom of heaven, we believe in what God has done, we believe in the fact that God in some way has already defeated evil, this beautiful heavenly picture. And then there's everyday lived, there's, you wake up on Monday, right? And then there's like your everyday lived reality. And it's not that we believe that that reality is unchanged, but rather that somehow these two things are slowly being brought together yeah. as one. And we find ourselves sort of in the middle of the tension feeling both of these things, right? Um, I love that image because I, I feel like it, it names our experience, but it also I so often find that the Bible, the more I study it, I find that it's with me in the middle there. Absolutely. You know, and I think you feel that tension very much in this passage. And, yeah. and the pain, I mean, that guy does not look very comfortable. No. Right? Yeah. And I think, I think we feel that sort of sense of being stretched and pulled and trying to, to, to bring this together somehow. Yeah. 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 So there's a real grace in your reading, I think. Um, now, uh, at the same time, like, the text doesn't just leave us with, so that things are the way they are, slavery is real, misogyny is real, the best you can do. 
is go along with it and trust that God sees you. There's more than that. Right, yeah, I mean, if it left us there, it would actually be pretty, it wouldn't actually be good news. And we know that the people who heard this message heard it as good news. Yeah. And so, yeah, one of the exciting things that happens, though, is in, in chapter four, we start to see that, that this isn't where it stops, yeah. that there's something bigger coming. Now, this is, I think, a really profound part of your reading here. Um, so if you've ever read letters in the New Testament, like Colossians or Romans or Corinthians or whatever, you might have noticed that often the letters have a section, often toward the end, where the writer turns to like some personal details and they start naming names that we've never heard of. And it feels like the part of the letter that's maybe the least applicable to us. And Colossians has one of those places at the end where the writer turns to names and details of the community there. Um, but uh, there's actually some really beautiful stuff lurking in that part of the text. So I want to read it to you. It might feel a little bit tedious or long or dry, but hang with that for a minute. And then, uh, Jessica, you'll help us kind of see what we, what we have here. So this is toward the end of Colossians, where the writer says, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that's happening here. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, different Jesus than the one you're thinking of. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who's one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. And he's always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he's working hard for you and for those that lie to see in Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke the doctor and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Anybody bored? That's okay. Yeah, lots of details, lots of names. Jessica, why do you look at that text as something hopeful? Well, because this is the, what's, this is the real lived experience starting to change. Something is going on in this community that shouldn't be happening by all like Greco-Roman world standards. So Onesimus our faithful and dear brother. Onesimus is a really interesting character at this moment because, you see, he's, he's a runaway slave. He's currently a runaway currently slave. Currently a runaway slave. <laughs> so submit to your masters. How many verses earlier was it? Like four? Yeah. Um, <laughs> right, and he's a runaway slave who is being referred to as a faithful and dear brother. Yeah. He is actually on his way back to his previous owner, Philemon, with a letter called Philemon now, um, in <laughs> the New Testament. That's in the New Testament, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, basically, where, the, where Paul is telling Philemon, you need to receive Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother. Mm. Now, to be, I mean, the difference between brother and slave in the ancient world mm -hmm. today is, is huge, right? This is, he is an equal. He, mm -hmm. is, he is part of your flesh, part of your family. Mm -hmm. You don't have any ownership over him anymore. Mm -hmm. And what's more, you have to love him as part of your flesh and part of your family. That's tremendous, for that sort of change to be happening, like in the actual inner person. Like it's one thing to say that ideologically, but right. it's actually happening. Yes. Similarly, you've got um, all these Gentiles, Luke and Damas, um, and a few others. Gentiles aren't supposed to be part of what God's doing in the world. Yeah. They know it's supposed to be for the Jews. Yeah. And, and there's all these Gentiles who Paul, Paul, who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, like he was passionate about his Jewish identity, is identifying as brothers yes. and fellow workers. Yeah. Again, not, not just ideology, but like actual lived changes. 
and then we get Nympha in the church in her house. If the guy is supposed to be in charge, yeah. well, Nympha's in charge. Yes. Nympha's running the church. Nympha's the one leading the household. Yeah. And so we can see already that, that this, this idea of that they're not being um, uh, Jew nor Gentile, circumcised nor uncircumcised, circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free is actually starting to do something in the interpersonal relationships in the church. Yeah. And so we're not just left in a place where, I'm sorry, life is really bad, God is with you in the darkness. Mm -hmm. But in these small, amazing, rumbling ways, God is starting to change the real lived experiences of people. And you are not slaves anymore. You are brothers. This is where, to me, the text almost becomes comical in a, in a delightful way. Like there's, like, there's almost a sense of humor in the text to me. So we have yeah. slaves obey your masters, and then a couple sentences later, Onesimus, the faithful one, who is literally running away from his master. <laughs> we have a text that is often used... Um, to very concretely put women in subordination to men, both in the home and in the church, ends with a greeting to the woman who runs the church in the home. Like, it just feels <laughs> like the text is sort of playing with these categories right after it's named these categories. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that actually gives us permission to reevaluate the categories. Mm -hmm. the re I mean, the reality is, in ancient literature, wives, children, and slaves were just like stock categories. Mm -hmm. Well, if we see these categories being undone in such a profound way at the end of this letter, and we recognize as a community now that slavery is a morally reprehensible category, well, maybe we shouldn't be reading these as applying to wives, children, and slaves today, mm. but maybe these are about how people in power exercise their power toward those who don't have power. Yeah, and so, so for each of us, that opens up a very different reading because then I'm not asking myself, well, am I a wife? Am I a husband? Am I a child? Am I a father? Am I a slave? Which one of these applies to me? But rather, I'm asking myself, okay, I, like everyone in this room, experience some power in the world. I think everyone here has some power in some circumstances. A lot of us have a lot of power here in this room. And you could read this text and ask yourself, well, then what does it say that you should do with your power, right? Yeah. And then from that reading, I get... Um, I should love those over whom I have power. I should not be harsh with them. I should not embitter them. I should, uh, as with the word to the masters, provide for them what is right and fair because I know that I also have a master in heaven. That begins to really change this reading. Absolutely. And you start to realize that, that we all have a lot of work to do on behalf of other people. Mm -hmm. And because all of these are kind of geared toward the liberation of people who don't have power as well. Mm -hmm. When you think about what is it to love someone, well, obviously, if you're loving them and you're not being harsh with them, part of what you're trying to do is bring out like their potential, who they are as human beings, help raise them mm -hmm. up, right? I mean, as a teacher, you know, I, I do this all the time, right? And, and then it's, oh, don't embitter or discourage, thinking of some of those comments on those final exams. Um, <laughs> you know, might have failed there. Um, you know, how, do, how do we treat those who we have economic power over? You know, are we fair and just with those who we employ, hmm. with those whose products we buy? I mean, I think, I think there starts to be a lot of, of really important um, mm -hmm. guidance for us in how we live our lives as people of power. But I still don't like the word submit and obey. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like to think I, I have it all together and I've got all the answers. Yeah. Um, and I've learned with difficult texts over time that when there's those moments that you don't like the text, you don't like what it says, it's good to let the text interrogate you for a while. Mm -hmm. Like, let it, let it work on you. Why? Why don't I like this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what, so, yeah. So, so what are you working out there? Uh, well, <laughs> why don't I like it? Well, because I don't like to submit and I don't like to obey. But I should. Hmm. The reality is there are a lot of people in this world who know more than I do about a whole lot of things and who have more life experience, 
have different types of intelligence, and have a lot to teach me. Mm. And one of the smartest things I am very slowly learning to do in my life is to listen to the guidance of other people. Mm. I mean, I remember writing my dissertation, and you know, when the dissertation advisor says, like, go back and rewrite the 50-page chapter. <sighs> it's very hard to submit to that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it makes for a better project, right? Mm. You know, piano teachers and swim coaches who tell you what to do to make yourself better. It's hard sometimes to submit to that, and you don't want to practice any more Hayden exercises or scales ever, but you have to. And, and I think there might be something to all of us here as well. Like, when do, what is it to submit in some contexts, mm -hmm. to obey in some contexts for our own growth? Because mm -hmm. that's, what, that's one of the big themes in Colossians, right, is that we might grow into fullness in Christ. Well, one of the ways we grow is by being teachable, mm -hmm. by being learners. And that requires submission and obedience. <laughs> and of course, if, if one of the big ideas in the text is that God is living God's life in human lives through bodies, then it might be that the person that you're having a hard time submitting to, again, I, I don't mean in those abusive frameworks, <laughs> no. but I mean in healthy and holy ways, the person you're having a hard time learning from and being humble toward, it might be through that life, through that body, through that voice that God has something to offer us, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, most likely. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay, so we have, um, we have a letter written uh, to a first century church uh, in an industrial backwater town that had known better days. A church uh, that is trying to take seriously the idea that Christ has been raised, not just for Christ, but for them. A church that has been told by far too many people that God is so disgusted with this flesh and blood reality that you've got to jump through hoops to get to God. And to refute that, the letter is written to say, no, don't you know that in Christ, God has not just tolerated flesh and blood, but has chosen to live the fullness of God's life in flesh and blood so that you can somehow be brought in on that life. It's a letter that tells us to put to death the things that cause us to war against one another and to clothe ourselves with the things that would bring peace between us. It's a letter that recognizes that not everybody who's hearing this is empowered to fully bring about that way of life for themselves. And the letter has the, the wisdom and the grace to say, even before you're empowered, even before you can achieve your own liberation, even now your life is a venue for what God is doing. But it's a letter that doesn't leave things there, but rather gives hints and whispers that even now, even in the first century, the good world that God has promised is beginning to break in as these categories are being broken and people are being lifted up. Does that sound about right? That sounds pretty good, huh? Yeah. I like that. Well, you guys say thanks to Jessica for working with us on this text. And I thought it would be especially fitting uh, if Jessica would offer our benediction. So if you're able, will you stand to your feet and she'll lead us in that. May you know that even in your darkest and most hopeless moments, when you feel like you have the least power, that even then your life is hidden in Christ and that God sees and will repay evil. May you be strengthened to use the power that you have to love, encourage, treat fairly, support, and work for the liberation of those who have less power than you. And may we all have the humility to submit to one another, to learn from each other, and grow in wisdom and grace as we work together for that day when all things will be brought to fullness under Christ. Grace and peace be with you. And also with you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jessica. Love you guys. See you soon.